As we come now to the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me and you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus in chapter 6. We'll take up these first uh, 13 verses here in Exodus chapter 6. I may get a little bit wet, but I think we'll be, we'll be okay. <laughs> Before we read here, would you please pray with me? Lord, in the days of Zechariah, you said that the people had made their hearts diamond hard so that they would not hear the law and the word of the Lord. Oh Lord, would you keep that from being true of us? Lord, would you melt in us any hardness, any unbelief, any stubbornness that we hold on to this morning? Lord, would you bring light to our hearts and minds by your Spirit? Would you uphold us by your faithfulness and cause us to trust you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is Exodus in chapter 6. I'll begin here in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel 
and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Woo! We've suddenly got some wind here. I hope there's not too much feedback. Um, this week, I happened to run across a famous sentence. Uh, many of you will recognize the sentence. Maybe you can even finish it here. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Um, this was part of a trivia question that I stumble upon. Uh, the question was, who said this sentence? Uh, and I eventually guessed it, took me a few guesses, eventually got there. It was Ronald Reagan, by the way, and I knew at least that the sentence was about the Berlin Wall. I realized, though, after I heard this, that I knew absolutely nothing about the Berlin Wall. And so, uh, you know, I, this, was, this happened when I was, I think, two years old. Um, the Berlin Wall falling, which might make some of you feel things, I don't know. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. At any rate, I, I got curious about this, so of course I did some digging and some research, and I learned that the wall came as an attempt to rebuild Germany after the horrors that came from the Nazi party and from World War II. That after Germany was conquered in World War II, the, the, the various countries that conquered it then were divided about the direction that Germany should go. And so they divided up the country, and the division between those two paths and those two sets of countries grew until eventually there was a wall built between them in Berlin. Berlin was a city that needed to heal. And yet in the middle of this, there still bubbled a civil unrest. They still felt the friction of the Iron Curtain. And so the tearing down of the Berlin Wall was a visible symbol of the crumbling of some of that hostility. It was a sign of hope for the people. Now, this sermon is not a history lesson on uh, Germany. I am not qualified uh, to give that. But the only reason I mention this is to point out that the sentence, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, is not just a trivia sound bite. It is part of an event set in history with a story all around it. It is not just an isolated clip from a speech. It is a speech that is nestled in a context, and we have to see that context in order to understand the meaning of the sentence. The same is true here in Exodus. These 13 verses that we've just read here are a big conversation, if you've noticed. It's, it's a back and forth between the Lord and Moses, his chosen deliverer. 
There's only one verse, actually, in this section that's not part of their conversation. And this one verse, we can see more of the context of the conversation, what's nestled around it that gives it the meaning. It's verse 9. This is not part of their conversation. This is the context. Verse 9 says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. What had been happening to the people in Egypt was not just the slavery of the people of Israel. It was what that slavery was doing to the people of Israel how it was deeply affecting them and had become part of their DNA. This is their Berlin Wall. And we're told here that they had broken spirits. Broken spirits. This phrase here is translated in some Bibles, they were discouraged which I think is an unfortunate translation. It just sounds a little too light. It's more than that. Some translate it, they were despondent. Others are a little more intense translating it, they had anguish of spirit. I think it's best if we just left the Hebrew phrase in its original. It's a metaphor. This little word here, or the phrase that's translated broken spirit, in Hebrew it literally means shortness of breath. That these generations in bondage, who are now even being forced to work without materials to work with, the effect of that is to constrict their chest so that they can't breathe. This is like a gut punch to their soul. That they got the wind knocked out of them. And if that's ever happened to you, If you've ever had the the wind literally knocked out of you, you know how frightening that can be. So the question for us now is this. In the midst of a situation in which the people cannot breathe, how will the Lord breathe life back into them? How will the Lord now restore those who are deeply broken? That's where we're headed. Let's look then at what the Lord says. If we look at just the opening of these verses in verse 1, it opens like this. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do. And in the rest of the conversation, we hear a whole lot of verbs now from the Lord about what he will do. If you're looking at your own Bible, it might be helpful to you even to go through and underline each of the verbs as you go through. The Lord says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will bring you in. And I will give you. You. 
The Lord is full of promises here, full of actions here. But, but, this is not the first breath of air that he gives his people. The first breath that he gives him, which is actually the anchor for everything that follows in this conversation, is in verse, well, let me begin in verse 2. Listen for the anchor here. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Let me pause here for a moment as we try to unpack this anchor. The Lord begins this discussion by talking about Abraham. And if I were Moses here, a part of me, if this is maybe just me, not Moses, uh, would think, Abraham... What's he got to do with this? I mean, Abraham was never even a slave in Egypt with us. He does not know what this is like. Abraham was almost 500 years ago. What on earth does Abraham have to do with us? But this is a common approach in the scripture. That as we read the scripture, very often the Lord moves us forward by first rewinding and causing us to look backward. And that looking backward is not just a wistfulness. You know, it's not just reminiscence about the good old days. Uh, That can be a temptation to some of us to look back and even get stuck in the past. That's not healthy. That may not even be holy. To look back and get stuck there might lead you into the sin of grumbling or complaining or despairing. Instead, the reason why the Lord is turning them to look backward is not to give them rose-colored glasses about how good they used to have it and how cute their kids used to be when they were little. The reason for looking back here is to see a truth that is timeless, a truth that is unchanged over the course of time. This will be an anchor that will last, that will continue to hold true in the future. And usually then, the things that are timelessly true are things about God. A God who does not change like shifting sand. So he turns us to look backward and see. This sort of looking backward, a very simple example. Sorry for the wind there if you heard that. A simple example of this looking backward is the season that we're actually in right now. And and I'm not talking about the, the wind that you're hearing or the weather of the seasons. I'm not talking about spring. I'm talking about the church calendar. We are in a season that's now called Eastertide. I just like that word. We're in what's called Easter Tide. It's one of my favorite of all the church seasons. So, you know, around Christmas, in the weeks leading up to December 25th, we call those weeks Advent. It's a season of anticipation. And then Christmas Day comes, the, the holy day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then we often forget that that. Christmas actually continues, that the days after Christmas Day are, are part of the calendar as well. That's called Christmastide. 
what we commonly know as the 12 days of Christmas. This is what comes after Christmas. And in Christmas tide, those are the days in which we now live in light of a truth that has happened in the past. We now live in light of the fact that God is with us, that God has been born to us, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We see a similar thing in the season of Eastertide. So in the week leading up to Easter, we have a, a, a term for that. We call that Holy Week. There's you know, Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday in which we, we are looking at Jesus working his way toward the cross. And then on Sunday, it's Easter morning, and, and we celebrate the holy day of the resurrection of Jesus. Praise God. But we often forget that the days after Easter are also part of the calendar and an important part. The days after, which we are now in, are called Easter Tide. It's the 50 days after Easter up until Pentecost. It actually ends, Easter Tide ends on the first day we'll be back in the sanctuary, coincidentally. But in Easter Tide, these are days in which we now live in light of a truth that has happened in the past. That we now live in light of the fact that Jesus has died for our sin. That Jesus said, it is finished. And that he not only died, but he also lives again, just as he told them. That's Eastertide. That we worship a living Jesus. So it's Eastertide, not the holiday, but the, the perspective of Eastertide, that sustains the Apostle Paul. Uh, when uh, Paul is writing his last letter, at least recorded in Scripture, uh, in his last letter here, 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy about the chains and the suffering that he himself is experiencing. And he tells Timothy one little line, which is this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Paul is then looking backward at a truth that is going to move him and Timothy forward. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. How might that change you if you listened to Paul? How might it change you if you listened to the truth that we would remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? These aren't just magic words, of course, or some sort of trivia piece. Uh, these are a Mr. Gorbachev moment with a story all around those words. How might it affect you then if your boss or your kids are getting on your last nerve to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Or how might it affect you if you've got big changes coming up in your future? Either in your know, school or in your family or in, with your house maybe? To remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? 
or if there's no change on the horizon for you at all. If life these days just feels like the same old cycle, the same old rut, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Or if you are struggling with sin, when the same old sin rears its ugly head in your life and you cannot seem to fight it off, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Or if you have experienced a devastating loss, a loss that you are not sure you can recover from, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead? For Moses, this looked different. Even though Moses and and all who trusted in the Lord, Old Testament and New, all are saved by the same living Jesus, just as we are, that, you know, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Uh, That's true of Moses too, but Moses does not have the benefit of being able to look back in history and see Jesus on earth. He cannot see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. So instead of the resurrection of Jesus, then what truth does the Lord God point Moses back to? What truth will he see to sustain him and the people? If you look here, the Lord points him back this direction. Let me read again in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 4, the Lord says this, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. In other words here, the Lord says that he has established a covenant long ago with Abraham. And that covenant is still now in effect. He says here, I remember that covenant. In other words, I uphold that covenant. Covenant, then, is the thing that he wants Moses to draw strength from, to draw confidence from. That's the story, then, behind this Berlin Wall for Moses. Remember, then, this covenant. So then, as we look at this, we need to talk about what a covenant is. A short summary... It's more than this, but it's not less than this. A short summary of a covenant is a covenant is the binding of two parties with solemn vows. A covenant is the binding of two parties with solemn vows. And the concept of a covenant is often lost on us as a culture because Culturally, there are few places in which we actually see solemn vows put into effect. The closest parallel for us is in a wedding. (laughs) A wedding is actually a covenant ceremony. Um, But even now, in our, our current cultural context, sometimes even in a wedding, the things that we call vows now have sometimes just have just become a list of things that we like about the person, 
So if you watch a wedding uh, you know, on, on TV or, or in the movies or even sometimes weddings in real life, if you look past the emotional music and the fact that the couple's usually really cute and, and staring into one another's eyes, if you, if you look through it and actually listen for, for what's being said, sometimes you can hear what's missing. Sometimes they're just talking about the other. They'll say things like, you make me happier than I thought I could be. Or, you make me want to be a better man. Or, or, I feel like I can laugh with you, I can cry with you, I feel safe with you, or I, I want to grow old with you. All of those things are nice and good. I hope that's true of all marriages. But these are not part of covenant. Because these words in them, there is nothing actually vowed there. In these words, they're missing the aspect of pledge, of promise, the thing that actually makes it a covenant. There must be some sort of actual vow made in a covenant. Or sometimes we hear in weddings uh, that there are vows made, but the vows are vowed about the wrong things. Not all vows are good. Uh, and, and one that we sometimes hear in weddings that is not a good vow is, I promise, there's a vow, I promise never to let anyone hurt you. Have you heard that? Either in weddings or, you know, sometimes parents also say it to their kids. I promise never to let anyone hurt you. That is well-meaning. It's well-intentioned. But that is not a promise you can keep. Even if you could keep that promise, it's not a good promise to keep. For your friends, for your kids, for your spouse, the Lord never promises us this vow. If you actually kept the vow never to let anyone hurt the one you love, you'd never let that person you'd never encourage them to, to go after an interview for a job that they really want. Because there's a chance they might not get the job and they'll feel the sting, the pain, the hurt of failure. Or if you try to keep the vow not to let anyone hurt them, you'd never let them ride their bike. <laughs> or, or ride in a car or, or fly in an airplane. You'd never let them uh, walk across the street for that matter or even have to let them out of your sight because something bad could happen to them. Or if you're just trying never to let anyone hurt them, you will never have hard and sometimes necessary conversations with them. Conversations like, you've started drinking too much and you need help. Or, You've become really critical and mean to people. You need to change your attitude. Or, I think you're becoming consumed with news and TV and Facebook. You need to turn it off. If we actually love a person Love does what is good for the other, even if it sometimes hurts them. 
We want then the vows that we ourselves make to be actually good and to come from a place of love. We know then that the Lord is good. God is love. So what then are the good covenant vows that he has made to his people in love here? We could spend the rest of the afternoon unpacking the covenant promises that God has made. We won't. We won't spend the rest of the afternoon doing that. Uh, Although it will be good for you if you take some time to look at the promises that he reminds them of here. But this morning, as we, we wind our way toward a close, I want to highlight just one of the covenant aspects. It's a sort of a summary of the covenant that we see here, and it's in verse 7. If you have your Bible, read with me. Verse 7, the Lord says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible and you've got your Bible with you, I want you to underline that first half of that verse. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. One writer has called this little section the covenant formula. And I think that's right here. This little section could be described as the covenant formula. We find it in various forms all over the scripture. It is the primary way in which the Lord relates to his people. The covenant formula that you are my people and I will be your God. And when he says, I will be your God, This isn't to imply that there's, you know, lots of real gods floating around out there. You know, the the Roman mythologies and Greek mythologies and Babylonian gods and Egyptian gods and all those. And then there's uh, the Lord, Yahweh, who just happens to be your God. That's not what he means. Your God here means there's a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging. You are my people. You're mine. And I am your God. I'm yours. And we belong to each other. These are similar to the words in the love poem in the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and he is mine. This is not just, you know, a sweet sort of sentimental way to talk about it. When you hear a couple say, I am my beloved's and he is mine, and you go, oh, aren't they cute? I want to be like them. Isn't that sweet? They love each other so much. That's true. There is so much love in here. But it's much, much more than that. More than just the sentimental sweetness. That you are my people and I am your God as part of these solemn vows of a covenant wedding. Of a deep, and lasting love from God Almighty. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we watch over the pages of Scripture that Israel will break those covenant vows again and again. They have wandering eyes and wandering hearts. 
And sometimes they're even sternly disciplined for their wanderings. But God never breaks his covenant promises. He says here, I have taken you to be mine. You're mine. Jesus would even go so far to shed his own blood to bring his bride back home. That's how much he loves. For now, when Israel is in a season in which they've got the wind knocked out of their lungs, the word of the Lord for them is to remind his people of his covenant. That God Almighty has bound himself to them. You are my people. And I am your God. The reason why this would sustain them then is because this covenant tells us something profoundly true about our God. It tells us something true about our God. Israel would struggle to see it now, but when they reached the other side of the Red Sea, after all the plagues are done, after slavery is over, and after they can begin to even breathe again, the people would look back on these days with fresh eyes, and they would see what God was doing here more clearly. That they would see that God keeps his covenant promises because he's faithful. He's a faithful God. We'll close here with these words from Deuteronomy chapter 7 as we see the faithfulness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me read here, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to us and to your promises. Lord, would you sustain us in the knowledge that you keep these promises. 
that you keep your covenant as a good husband to the bride he loves. Lord, would you help us to see through the clouds, see even through the shortness of breath, and help us to trust you because you are a faithful God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.